By way of reminder, we are in the middle of a mini-series in Galatians 5 this morning, and this will be my last sermon on the subject until September when I return from my vacation. We've already covered Paul's use of the term the flesh in Galatians 5, and we saw that it means basically remaining corruption in the believer, as opposed to meaning the body or human effort or ability, as the phrase is admittedly sometimes used in other places in Scripture. In Galatians 5, the flesh means remaining corruption in the believer. It's important to define terms. And this morning, we are looking particularly at Galatians 5.18, which says this, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And defining terms is again going to be crucial for understanding properly what Paul is saying here. Sometimes in the Bible, the phrase, the law, is shorthand for the Scriptures, all of God's revelation. For example, in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Elsewhere, the law means God's moral instructions. For example, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, John says, Sin is lawlessness. So by implication there, the term law means what God expects of us, what is righteous. And sometimes the law means the Old Covenant, as in Romans 10 and verse 4 which says Christ is the end, or, or the word is telos, goal, of the law. Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, the telos of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So which one of these aforementioned possibilities does Paul mean in Galatians 5 when he says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Looking at the rest of Galatians, we can see that Paul consistently uses the phrase in that context to mean the Old Covenant. The law in Galatians consistently means the Old Covenant. Galatians 3 verses 16 and 17 is the clearest example of this assertion. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. Now, since we know that God wrote His law on mankind's heart in the beginning, according to Romans 2 and verse 15. And this is why it is sinful and always has been to be idolatrous, to conceive of God as however we like to conceive Him, make an image of Him in our minds, to be irreverent, to refuse to set aside time to worship Him, to dishonor mother and father, to murder, to commit adultery, to steal, to bear false witness, to covet. There's never been a time when that's okay. 
So since we know that God wrote his law on mankind's heart, Romans 2.15 tells us that at the beginning, which is why even unbelievers... have, as, as Romans 2.15 says, have the work of the law written on their hearts. And since it has always been immoral to break any of God's Ten Commandments, even before the, the Sinai Covenant was introduced, since we know these things, we know that God's moral instructions did not come 430 years after the promise was made to Abraham. It is not that mankind was without the law in the sense of knowing what is good and what is evil. It's not that mankind wasn't, was without moral obligation until 430 years after God gave promises to Abraham. So we know from that that when Paul says that the law came 430 years after God made this promise to Abraham, he's not talking about the law as in God's moral instructions. Rather, he is using the phrase the law as it's used in other various places in scripture to refer to the old covenant. The old covenant which came 430 years after Abraham. Now this understanding of what Paul means by the law, namely the old covenant in Galatians, fits very well with the context of Galatians. See, the problem that Paul is writing Galatians to address is that there were Jewish syncretists, false believers, really, because Paul says in the first chapter, if anyone's preaching a, a different gospel, let him be accursed, an anathema. There were false believers then, Jewish syncretists, who were trying to get the Christians to continue to observe the Old Covenant ceremonial law as well as the moral law and to trust in their law keeping for righteousness before God. In other words, the summary of their teaching was something like this. Righteousness comes through obedience and faithfulness to the Old Covenant. That was the problem that was going on in the Galatian church. By implication then, according to these false teachers, the Gentile believers who did not embrace Judaism along with embracing Jesus could not possibly be righteous. And moreover, if, as these false teachers were saying, righteousness comes through obedience and faithfulness to the Old Covenant, then righteousness could not possibly be merely by faith in Christ. And so this false teaching was anti-gospel. It was saying, okay, sure, yeah, trust in Jesus, but if you want to be righteous, you have to embrace Judaism. You have to put yourself under the law, under the old covenant. If you don't, you are not righteous. That undermines the gospel, but what it also did was it, was it created a schism in the church where you had those who kept the Old Covenant law and those who didn't, and those who kept the Old Covenant law wouldn't associate with those who didn't. And so this teaching was undermining the gospel and it was also schismatic. 
creating a division in the church. So Paul is writing the Galatians to set the record straight. Beginning in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul sets up an antithesis between being justified by faith in Christ on the one hand and being justified by works of the law on the other hand. By works of the law, Paul says, no one will be justified. Now, we have to ask the question, why not? Why, by works of the law, will no one be justified? After all, aren't God's rules a perfect and reliable guide for righteousness? Well, technically, yes. Even Paul concedes this in Galatians. He reiterates in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 12 that the terms of the Old Covenant are the one who does them shall live by them. So even Paul concedes in this context, in Galatians, where he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. He concedes the fact that the one who does them shall live by them. Well, what is the problem then with the teaching of these Judaizers trying to get people to be righteous by the works of the law if, in principle, the one who does them shall live by them. The problem is this, and you ought to be well aware of this by now if you've been around CRVC for any length of time. The problem is this. None of us have kept God's law as we ought to have to date. So even if, hypothetically, you could just stop sinning today and do everything that the law requires, then at the end of your life, when you give an account, would you have perfect righteousness? The answer is no, because the sins of this morning and yesterday and the day before and so, so forth haunt you. So you're already <clears throat> shot. There's no, there's no possible way to salvage an imperfect record. Okay, so the one who does them shall live by them. Here's, here's problem one, you haven't done them. <laughs> problem two is, of course, that you can't just stop sinning today. Right? There is no fault in God's moral standard. There is no fault in the law. Rather, the fault is in our inability to keep it. That is why, by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, the same biblical author Paul, after explaining that the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death to me, Paul says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, Paul says. The reason why obedience to the old covenant cannot lead to righteousness in God's eyes is not because it was a lower standard than God requires of someone in order to be righteous. It is not because the standard is imperfect. 
Rather, the reason why obedience to the Old Covenant cannot lead to righteousness in God's eyes is because of our inability to keep it. Because of our sin. Or in the language of Galatians 5, our flesh. And so Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul goes on to explain that, right? So he's, he's hammering this point that you can't be justified by the works of the law. He's hammering this point because there's people in the Galatian church that are saying, yes, you can, and you ought to be. And if you don't try, you can't be righteous. Paul is saying, don't even go down that road because trying to be justified by the works of the law is only going to result in you being cursed because cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law. Which raises the question then and the dilemma for the Galatian believers who are listening to Paul and receiving this letter. Well, how then can someone be righteous? Paul explains in Galatians concurrently, sort of interwoven and alongside his attack against trying to be justified by the works of the law. Paul explains that there is another way to be righteous in God's eyes. Which he says was operative before the Old Covenant was even instituted. He cites Genesis 15 and verse 6 in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Which says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So listen to Paul's logic. Before there was even an old covenant to obey, to keep, to be faithful to, a man was counted as righteous in God's eyes. So if a guy was counted as righteous in God's eyes before there even was an old covenant to keep, then obviously it's possible to be righteous without keeping the old covenant. Therefore, Paul reasons in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17, which I read to you earlier, the law, that is the old covenant, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, this later covenant doesn't change the fact that Abraham was counted as righteous in God's eyes before there even was an old covenant. And so righteousness is possible apart from faithfulness to and obedience to the old covenant. This is Paul's logic. So to summarize, if Abraham was justified before the old covenant was even instituted, there must be another way then to be justified. What is that way? Faith. In Christ Jesus, Paul says in Galatians 3.14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. 
He says, furthermore, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, Paul's pressing this on the Galatian church. It is following in the footsteps of Abraham's faith that leads to the promised blessedness including the blessedness of being counted as righteous in God's eyes. Trying to keep the old covenant for blessedness, for righteousness, is a fool's errand. It's a wild goose chase. It will backfire. It will only result in you being cursed because cursed is the one who does not abide by all the things in the book of the law. And moreover... Trying to keep the old covenant for blessedness, including righteousness in God's eyes, is unnecessary. It's superfluous if it's redundant. If one already has righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus and is already Abraham's offspring and an heir to the promise. So if you follow in the footsteps of Abraham and have faith in the promised offspring of Abraham, who is Christ Jesus, you're already blessed. You're already righteous. You have the same righteousness that Abraham had before the Old Covenant was even instituted. So therefore, to go and put yourself under the Old Covenant and try to get righteousness that way is unnecessary. It's superfluous. In fact, it is counterproductive because if you try to get righteousness by obeying and keeping the old covenant, it will only end in a curse. This is what Paul's doing in Galatians. Since this is the case then, the Galatians should not listen to the Judaizers who are trying to get them, who are trying to, get them to submit themselves to the old covenant and try to obey it for blessedness and righteousness. If the Galatians are already Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, who have received the promised spirit through faith, then it would not only be redundant, but also regressive to go put themselves back under the old covenant. They should tell the Judaizers then to take a hike. Get out of here. Stop troubling us with this nonsense. We are Abraham's children. Abraham's offspring. Heirs. Of the promises by faith. We already have blessedness. We already have righteousness in Christ Jesus. We don't need to go back under the old covenant. In fact, it's not even it's not even a neutral option. It's a bad choice for us to do that. So we're not going to. Get out of here with your legalism. To hammer this point home, because it's important for us understanding our passage. Paul explains in Galatians 4, 24 and following that there are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. The other, by implication, is the covenant which Christ mediates, which is enacted on better promises, as Hebrews 8 and verse 6 says. 
So Paul is arguing in Galatians that, are, that there are two ways to try to attain righteousness and blessedness. One is by being obedient to the Old Covenant. And though this is hypothetically valid, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you don't keep all the things written in the book of the law, you're under a curse rather than being accounted as righteous and accordingly blessed. The other way in Galatians to attain righteousness and blessedness is to do it by faith in Christ Jesus, as Abraham did, to believe God's promise concerning his offspring. And here's the point that is especially relevant for us this morning. We receive the promised Spirit through faith. As Galatians 3 and verse 14 says. So it is in this sense, with the terms thus defined, the law referring to the Old Covenant, that Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you have attained righteousness, not by the Old Covenant, but by believing in Christ, and if you have received the promised Spirit through faith, such that you now live by Him, and are walking by Him, and keeping in step with Him, and led by Him, then it would be not only unnecessary, but regressive for you to subject yourself to the Old Covenant. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says, you are free. This is the context and the sense of Paul's statement that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you're righteous and blessed one way, you're free from the obligation to try to be righteous and blessed another way. If you're righteous and blessed in Christ Jesus and have received the promised Spirit through faith and you you live by Him and you walk by Him, then the law covenant has nothing to do with you. The old covenant is irrelevant to you. You're not under the law. You're on a different track. Now, I hope you can see with all of this theological background in place, the relevance of this clarification to our study of Galatians 5, and particularly what it means to be led by the Spirit and not under the law. To be led by the Spirit does not mean that we are no longer morally obligated to obey God's moral instructions. The Spirit's leading is consistent with the law defined as God's moral instructions. You can't be in the new covenant getting righteousness by faith in Christ Jesus and live alive by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and trying to get righteousness by the old covenant. In that sense, you can't be led by the Spirit and under the law at the same time. 
You can't be under the law, meaning the Old Covenant, trying to get righteousness by it, and be led by the Spirit at one and the same time. But you can be under the law with respect to being obligated to obey God's moral instructions and led by the Spirit at the same time. You see how it it matters how we define the law. And we can't just immediately just read something and just make a superficial interpretation and then draw a whole paradigm for our sanctification and our Christian growth and maturity based on a faulty superficial understanding of one verse without looking at it carefully. The Spirit's leading is consistent with God's moral instructions. Since Paul is not using the phrase, the law, to mean God's moral instructions in Galatians 5.18, he is therefore not teaching in that verse that if you are led by the Spirit, you are not obligated to obey God's moral instructions. This is the way that some people take it, though. If you quote to them a Bible verse which indicts them as sinners... Even if you do it gently and kindly and respectfully, just trying to bring a brotherly correction and be of some help, they respond, I'm not under the law. When, when someone is facing a decision, and again, maybe, maybe you go kindly, respectfully, gently, tenderly, whatever, and you talk to them, and you bring a commandment of God to shed some light on what they should do in a particular situation. They tell you that they are led by the Spirit and they don't make decisions that way. Because they're not under the law. This sort of understanding is problematic for a couple of reasons. First, there's no section of Scripture that sets the Holy Spirit against God's moral instructions. There is no section of Scripture that sets the Holy Spirit against God's law defined as God's moral instructions. Properly understood and interpreted, as I hope you've seen by now, Galatians 5.18 does not. Neither does Romans 6.14, that you are not under the law, but under grace. Nor Romans chapters 7 and verse 6, which says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Not 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, which says, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Or 2 Corinthians 3.17, which says, the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. For the sake of time, I'm not going to endeavor to exposit all of those passages to prove my assertion. The point that I'm making is that if you carefully study those passages, as we have looked a little more carefully at Galatians 3.18, you will find that none of those either set up the Holy Spirit against the law defined as God's moral instructions. There is no place where the Holy Spirit opposes God's moral instructions or where there is a contrast between the leading of the Spirit and God's moral instructions. That's the first reason that it is faulty to understand the Holy Spirit to be in opposition to the law in the sense of God's moral instructions. 
The second reason that such an understanding is faulty is that it would pit the persons of the Trinity against one another. If the Holy Spirit sets you free from the obligation to obey God's law, then apparently the Father wants something different for you than the Spirit does. Apparently, though it is the Son's delight to do the Father's will, it is not the Spirit's delight to see the Father's will done. I hope you can see the obvious error of setting up the Spirit against the law defined as God's moral instructions. If God is the lawgiver, which He is, then the Spirit is the lawgiver. Otherwise, we have a Godhead which is divided within Himself. That is the second problem with setting the Holy Spirit against God's moral instructions. By contrast to this faulty understanding, and in actuality then, the Holy Spirit leads consistently with the law of God in the sense of God's moral instructions. The Holy Spirit never leads us to go try to get righteousness by keeping and obeying the Old Covenant. Or any other law for that matter. But the Holy Spirit does lead us to obey God's moral instructions. I encouraged you last week to ask yourself, what does the Holy Spirit desire to do in my life? What does the Holy Spirit desire for me? I encourage you even to pray and ask God, Holy Spirit, what... what, what do you desire? If the, if the flesh has its desires and the Holy Spirit has His desires, then, we, then it, it's, it's reasonable to say, Holy Spirit, what are those desires? I hope you can see by now that the Holy Spirit desires for you to conform to God's law. He will lead you toward obedience to God's law. And will never lead you in contradiction to God's law. Well, the flesh, that is your remaining corruption, desires to see you disobey God's law. The Spirit desires to see you obey God's law. So the written Word of God is a great help to us in walking by the Spirit. When we are not sure what the Holy Spirit desires to do in our lives, we may look to the written Word of God and see the Spirit's desires for your life right there in black and white. We may be assured then of the Spirit's help as we endeavor to obey the law of God. That's the general principle. Now let me develop it a little bit more with, with an expansion. But before we get to the expansion, I want to insert one clarification right here. The clarification is this. I know that some of you are thinking, that's not what the leading of the Holy Spirit means. The leading of the Holy Spirit is like what we see in Acts 10. 
where Peter falls into a trance and sees a vision. And then the Spirit says to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter ends up going to Cornelius' house, and Cornelius and his household are saved. Now I know some of you are going, that is the leading of the Holy Spirit. So John, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything about the leading of the Holy Spirit, if you're telling us what you're telling us this morning. Now, listen to me. I don't dispute that what we see in Acts 10 was a leading of the Holy Spirit. Obviously. I don't know, I don't, I don't know how anyone could credibly make the case that what we see in Acts 10 was not a leading of the Holy Spirit. Alright? So I grant that. However, context, context, context. Okay? In Galatians 5, this is not the sort of leading of the Spirit that is in view. It doesn't fit at all with the context. After all, the contrast in Galatians 5 is not between the natural and the supernatural. As if Paul is saying, look, y'all are dutifully going about your days. Trying to obey the Bible, work hard at your jobs, be good family men, whatever. But you're not falling into trances and seeing visions and getting words from the Spirit to go do this and that. You need to be led by the Spirit. Okay? That is not what Paul's dealing with in Galatians 5. What is Paul dealing with? Paul is dealing with, y'all are indulging the desires of the flesh. And instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh, you need to gratify the desires of the Spirit. Instead of being led away from the path by the flesh, you need to be led along the path by the Holy Spirit. Can you see that we're talking about two t different types of leading? So, the question of the sort of supernatural leading of the Spirit that we see in Acts chapter 10 and whether He still leads us today to go here and there and do this or that or whatever is irrelevant for our study this morning. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're talking about something else this morning. Paul's not talking about that in Galatians 5. Paul's talking about something else. He's not talking about the Spirit leading us supernaturally to do something we wouldn't otherwise have known to do. Rather, he's talking about the Spirit leading us away from sin and toward righteousness. So again, context, defining terms. What is, the, what is Paul saying in Galatians 5? Okay, So, clear that objection away. With that clarification in place, let us move to the expansion of the general principle. The general principle that I gave you is that, well, the flesh desires to see you disobey God's law. The Spirit desires to see you obey God's law. So the written Word of God is a great help to us in walking by the Spirit. When we are not sure what the Holy Spirit desires to do in our lives, we may look to the written Word of God and see the Spirit's desire right there in black and white. We may be assured... Furthermore, of the Spirit's help then as we endeavor to obey the law of God. So if we open the Bible and we say, look, the Bible says I should do this or that. 
I'm going to try to do that now. Holy Spirit, please help me. I know that it is your desire for me to do this. So please help me to do this. Right? The Spirit's working in harmony with the law of God. Now this is true. But consider, furthermore, that the Holy Spirit desires to help you think through, apply, and live out the implications of God's law for your life. So not only does the Holy Spirit desire for you to do what is explicitly written in the Bible, or explicitly commanded in the Bible, and to avoid what is explicitly prohibited in the Bible, but the Holy Spirit also desires to help you think through, apply, and live out the implications, the implications of God's law in your life. So you know, for example, that you ought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know that already, right? So that's the Holy Spirit's desire for you. We know that. The Holy Spirit is in your life, Christian, in part, to help you think through the specific implications of that in your individual life. To apply it and to live it out. So you're left with the question, okay, I know that the Holy Spirit desires for me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, and my neighbor as myself. What does that look like in my life? The Holy Spirit is present and desirous to help you right there with that question. He works by, quote, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. As we read and study the scripture, we are helped to understand it better and better and make better applications to our lives. Who helps us with that? The Holy Spirit. He is the means of answered prayer for wisdom. Which as James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. By what means does God give us wisdom? By His Holy Spirit. The wisdom of God is imparted to us by the Spirit of God. And this passage indicates to us, this passage in Galatians 5 indicates to us that He gives us inward impressions about what, is, what are right and wrong applications of God's Word to our lives and impulses to do this or that morally with respect to our lives. So again, the impressions and the impulses that I'm talking about here are not like, go talk to that guy with a blue shirt. Take a bus to St. Lucie and you know, walk over by a goat in the field and someone will meet you there. 
That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Listen. The Holy Spirit works giving us inward impressions and impulses with respect to our moral obligations to God to make us more righteous people. The Spirit is set in contrast to the flesh here in Galatians 5. And note, note that it is not the Bible and the flesh which are set in contrast in Galatians 5. Now we've already seen that the Spirit and the Bible are not against each other, right? So hear me, hear me out on this one. In a given situation, as the flesh deceitfully impresses upon you what the best course of action will be. You ever had that experience? Where you start to feel like it would be good to do something bad. That's the flesh impressing upon you that such and such is a good course of action. Go do that. Alright? The Bible certainly is telling you don't do that. But moreover, we are led to believe from Galatians 5 that the Spirit is also opposing that impulse and that impression of the flesh. In a given situation, when there is an impulse from the flesh to do what is sinful, not only can we turn to the Word of God for clarity about what is right, but also we should expect, since the Spirit and the flesh are set in antithesis in Galatians 5, that wherever there is an impulse to do what is fleshly, to give in to our remaining corruption, there will be an impulse of the Spirit. There will be an impression of the Spirit working upon you in a contrary manner. Since the written Word of God, the law of God, is our rule of life, and since the Holy Spirit always works consistently with the law of God. We may be sure we may be sure that there will be harmony between the way that the spirit works in our lives and what we read. But we must nevertheless acknowledge that the Scripture presents the ministry of the Spirit of God as being additional to, as being supplementary to, complementary to, that objective guidance and help that we have from the written Word of God, that there will be a subjective work of the Holy Spirit in our lives specifically if we are Christians impressing upon us what is right what is wrong 
That there will be a, a, an impulse from the Holy Spirit contrary to the impulse of the flesh in any given situation. There is not only, therefore, the empowering of the Holy Spirit in righteous living, but there is the leading of the Holy Spirit in righteous living. In other words, when we're battling the flesh, the Scripture gives us more than saying, just go read the Bible. When we are battling against the flesh, the Scripture gives us more than look to the law of God and you'll know what to do. The Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God is working in harmony with the law of God, yes, but distinguishable from the Word of God in your life, Christian. Desiring to do something in you contrary to what the flesh desires to do in you. So in the midst of a battle... When the flesh presents you with an impulse, a temptation, not only can you turn outside of yourself to the written Word of God for help, which you can, but also the Spirit of God who dwells in you is there to turn to. Say, what do you desire to do in my life, Holy Spirit, in this situation? Contrary to my flesh. What do you want to do here? When we're not sure about an application of God's Word to our lives, an application of God's law, an implication of God's law to our lives, we're not only left to talk to other smart people, and good exegetes and good expositors, how would I apply the law of God to my life in this situation or in that situation? We also have the Holy Spirit to help us. I gave you an example last week which was intentionally ambiguous. If you've already been spending your week selflessly and generously pouring yourselves out for other people, and then you're exhausted and one more thing comes up, should you go and pour yourself out yet again in an already exhausting week for the sake of someone else? Or should you go home and take advantage of the God-giving blessings of a good meal and sleep and a little bit of recreation so that you can wake up and pour yourself out again tomorrow and in a more sustainable way moving forward in the future? There is no law of God that says you have to do one or the other. You can make a reasonably good case for either one. In a situation like that, you are not left merely to go study the Bible. You ought to, and the Holy Spirit will help you with the study of the Bible, and will help you understand principles better and how to apply better and so on and so forth. In a situation like that, you're not merely left to phone a, a wise or godly person and ask them, hey, what do you think I should do in this situation? You also have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to do something in you in that very situation. The Holy Spirit wants to do something in you. 
He wants to bear fruit in you. What is that fruit? You see, that's not objective. That's subjective. But we have to acknowledge, based on Galatians 5, a certain amount of subjectivity in our Christian maturity and growth. Where the Holy Spirit is at work, not just generically among God's people. Not just objectively the way that the the law of God applies equally to us and indiscriminately to us. But that it's actually possible that the Holy Spirit is working on a specific thing in you in a particular season. That He wants to bear a certain kind of fruit in you particularly in a particular season. That there are lessons that the Holy Spirit is teaching you particularly in a particular season. If it were not so, the Holy Spirit, whether or not you even knew that the Holy Spirit was battling the flesh in you or not, would be irrelevant. If all, if all that battling the flesh was, was just going to the Bible, and trying to obey what it says. And you didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit desiring against the flesh in your life. It would make no difference to your sanctification. Think about that. As I said last week, becoming conscious of the battle between the flesh and the Spirit within is the first step in learning to be led by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit. The second step is learning to discern specifically how He is at work in your life and what He wants to do in you specifically. As I said, this is quite subjective, of course. Of necessity, it's quite subjective. For if there was no subjective leading of the Spirit, then it would be synonymous to say led by the Bible and led by the Spirit. So recognize that the Spirit will not lead you inconsistently with the law of God in the sense of God's moral instructions. He will always lead you toward what is explicitly commanded and away from what is explicitly prohibited. But we should expect, based on Galatians 5, that He will also work specifically with you, individually with you, by way of Impressions and impulses against, contrary to, the impressions and impulses of the flesh in your life. And toward the specific implications and applications of the law of God with respect to your unique set of circumstances. So become conscious in the first place of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. Recognize there even is a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And then become conscious in the second place that the Holy Spirit has desires to do something specifically in your life in this season in terms of helping you work out the implications and applications of the law of God in your life and to help you live it out and to conform you to the character of Christ.
There is fruit that the Holy Spirit wants to bear in your life. Right now. For one person, maybe the Holy Spirit is really working on building patience. For another, perhaps self-control. For another, joy, etc. We recognize that ultimately the Holy Spirit wants to bear all the fruit of the Spirit in your life and conform you entirely to the law of God. We recognize that. We grant that. We acknowledge that. But as finite beings, we cannot deal with every sin and grow in every area of deficiency at once, concurrently. So thirdly, seek to understand what the Holy Spirit is desiring to do in your life right now. What is this season that you're in? What is the Holy Spirit doing in you? Defensively, so to speak, where is, this, where is the flesh pulling, pushing, and prodding you most right now? And what is the Holy Spirit doing to the contrary? You can bet if you're really battling with lust that the Holy Spirit is desiring to do something contrary to that. You can, you can bet if you're really dealing with anger that the Holy Spirit is, is dealing with something contrary to that. Then offensively, so to speak, in what way does the Holy Spirit desire for you to become more Christ-like? And what fruit is He desiring to bear in you? See, the Holy Spirit doesn't just always act reactively and defensively, waiting for the flesh to do something and then opposing it. What is the Holy Spirit initiating in terms of Christian growth in your life? What area of deficiency might the Holy Spirit be working on saying, we're going to deal with this right now? The way Paul sets it up in Galatians 5, we should not expect the process of sanctification to just be you, your flesh, and the Bible. Rather, the process of sanctification involves you, your flesh, your Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Don't mistakenly think that walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and keeping in step with the Spirit is going to be in any way inconsistent with the law of God or separate from the law of God with respect to your moral life. Obedience to what is explicit and then working out further implications and applications of God's law is what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing in your life right now. However, and here's the point, here's the point that I want to press on you. Don't mistakenly think that there is no Holy Spirit to lead you, to keep in step with, and to help you in this struggle. Be attentive to and be cooperative with the Holy Spirit's work in your life. To bear fruit in accordance with and in conformity to the law of God.